0: And uh, we've had a we've acclimatizing. Uh, I mentioned in our Sabbath school. Hopefully this week, you know, we'll be able to start looking for a house, and then we'll feel as if we're at home and we have a, a stake in this great country. Uh, I've finished my my year's teaching already. Yeah, that's not because you have shorter years in uh, in America than we do in Europe, uh, but it's because we have a research seminar. So now I'm as like a free bird for the next couple of months, just researching. So that's the the blessings of being at Andrews. This morning, I've come to share with you a topic which is very important uh, on my heart, and it's who God is. And uh, my purpose this morning is to share with you why I believe God is someone that we can love and serve. And I would like to tell you the story of divine revelation. Before I need to that, because I'm a teacher, I need to do revision from last time I was with you. Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? Do you remember? I shared with you from the Gospel of Mark five things about the Son of Man. Do you remember which chapters they were? Two plus eight equals ten. Chapter two, we are told, the Son of Man forgives sins. Chapter two, the last verse, we are told, the Son of Man forgives Is Lord of the Sabbath. And then we jump to chapter 8, and there we are told that the Son of Man, the third thing, He will be betrayed, crucified, and He will rise on the third day. And then at the very end of chapter 8, we are told that the Son of Man will come back in the clouds of glory. What event are we talking about? The second coming. So there's the fourth thing. And then chapter 10, verse 45, 2 plus 8 equals 10. The Son of Man came to serve rather than be served. So why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? Because I have my sins forgiven. I am no legalist. Do you know that? Some people accuse us because we keep the Sabbath of being uh, legalists. No, the Son of Man forgives my sins. I walk with a clean conscience because my sins have been forgiven each day of the week. He is Lord of the Sabbath. It's His to decide what I do on my Sabbath day. And then He is the risen Lord. So death has lost its sting. Nothing can happen to me in this life that will wipe my smile of joy away from, from my face. And then He is coming again. That means I don't need to trust in American politicians This is serious, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I thought I'd get that one in early anyway. Yeah, American politicians or even English, British, European politicians. Yeah. Why? Because the world's future lies not in the hands of earthly kings and princes, but in the hands of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then he came to serve. And if I imitate that... I would suggest that's the antidote to the selfish life. I live for others rather than living for myself. So that's why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And next time I'm here, if I come, I will test you again. (laughs) Until by the time I've preached here a couple of times, I know that you know, and then I will move on. But not until then. So, this morning, I would like to share with you the story of divine revelation. And uh, I've titled this, The Name of the Lord. Names are important. Um, I, uh, I was checking the news yesterday, and uh, you wouldn't believe this, but um, uh, a couple in Germany have named their little baby boy Brexit. Now, I don't know if that means anything for you, but uh, since I preached to you last time, we've had... Uh, June the 23rd, which is my new birthday, I have become a new man. Yeah, June the 23rd, we voted Brexit. And now I've got a feeling of what it means to have an Independence Day. Yeah? but you imagine naming your kid Brexit? Yeah? And uh, what I would do, I would challenge other people, if they really feel strongly about this, to name their son EU, <laughs> European Union, yeah? or USA. USA, yeah? But uh, names have meaning, don't they? And this is what I'm going to share with you today, the name of the Lord. To do this, I need to tell you a story, because the Bible is above else. It's more than a book of doctrine. It is a story of God's interaction with humanity, and I need to tell you a story. Stories are always easier to remember than isolated doctrines, and I'm going to tell you the story of how God reveals Himself. The important impact of this is that we need to come to realize that God's revelation may not be the same to you as it is to me. And that's why I need to fellowship with you and you with me. The start of this story, or where I'm going to start, is in the book of Joshua. And I'm starting with Abraham. Abraham, before the Lord, called him to go to a far land uh, and uh, uh, set up a nation for him, before he took that step, what church did he belong to? Do you know what faith Abraham was before the Lord called him? And we find the answer in Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3. Let me read this in your hearing. You're going to need your Bibles this morning. Joshua 22, oh well, I've got 24 there, let me jump over to verse 20, uh, chapter Twenty-four, Verse 2, and there we read, and Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates, so that's in Ur of the Chaldees, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac and, uh, uh, and let, let me come on to Jacob, and Esau. We read the same thing in verse 14. Now therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river that's beyond the river Euphrates, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. So Abraham, before the Lord called him, what church was he a member of? What faith did he follow? He was a a heathen, a pagan. He followed other gods. And then one god spoke to him and made him a promise and told him to move. Sell up and move. And so he did. And so we come to the story of the patriarchs. And where we find this is back in Genesis. Turn with me back to Genesis. And in Genesis you find, as you read through, that at key points God reveals who he is to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and to his sons. And these occur at times when he's either repeating his promise or when he's renaming someone. You're no longer to be called Abraham. Instead, you're going to be called Abraham. At these key points, God reveals himself. And it's his name that I want us to take note of this morning. Let me share these incidents as we go through Genesis. Genesis 17. Abraham is being addressed by God, and he's repeating the covenant. And this is what we read. In chapter 17, verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am, and what name does he use? God Almighty, or in some of the versions, what does that have? Almighty God, God Almighty, and if you have a little note that takes you down to your footnotes, what's the Hebrew for that? El Shaddai. You know, when I was a nipper in church, growing up, we used to have this song that we used to sing: El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Adonai. You remember that song? Beautiful song. Yeah, it's a shame that these contemporary songs only have a shelf life of 15 years, and then we're forced to stop singing them. You know, Uh, because the new ones come along. But uh, this is who he reveals himself to be: I am God Almighty. El I? We carry on to chapter 28, and we find a similar thing. Chapter 28, another key point in the book of Genesis. Here we have Isaac calling Jacob to him and blessing him. So a very important point in the narrative. And in verse 3, we read this. These are the words of Isaac. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and numerous, that you may become a company of people. May he give to you the blessing of Abraham. This is recounting the earlier promise. What name does God is invoked? God Almighty, El Shaddai. We go to chapter 35 and we find a similar thing. Chapter 35, verse 11. Here we have God appearing to Jacob, another key moment in the narrative, God appears to him, reveals himself to him. In verse 10, we read this, God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. I mean, to take somebody's identity and just rewrite it, that's a major development in your life. This is what God is doing to Jacob. I'm no longer going to call you Jacob, I'm going to call you Isaac, Isaac. So he was called Israel. God said to him, verse 11, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring up from you. And we get a repetition of the promise. We come to the end of Genesis. And here we have, in chapter 48, we have Jacob, where he's bringing his sons to him. You remember the situation? And where he gives them their final blessing. And in chapter 48, Jacob, he's blessing Joseph in verse 3. He says this. God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase in numbers. We get a repetition of the covenant once more. So as we're going through, so far we have found that when we look at Abraham... What was he? A pagan. And then God started to reveal himself to Abraham and to his son and to his grandchildren. And when he reveals himself at these key moments, the way he reveals himself is as El Shaddai. God Almighty. El is the Greek, the Hebrew word, the common word for God. And you know what's interesting is that if you study other religions from that area, if you look at the Hittites, you look at the, uh, the other surrounding nations, what you find is that they had a God called El Shaddai. They had a pantheon of gods, a pantheon of gods where you have your top god, your lesser gods, and your lower gods. And every so often they'd have a squabble and one would get promoted and one would be demoted. And the God you wanted to be, number one, was El Shaddai because he was the kindest and most merciful. He was the nicest God. And God reveals himself to this pagan Abraham as the nicest God in town. I am El Shaddai. That is the first stage of divine revelation, I would say to you. God chooses to reveal himself to people in a way that they will understand. I am El Shaddai, the God who is over everything, the one who is strong. This is God who is maybe a little more distant. This is God, the supreme ruler, El Shaddai, God Almighty. But then we come to stage two in biblical revelation. And that occurs when we move to the book of Exodus. In Exodus, we start with the story of Israel down in Egypt. They have been slaves for hundreds of years, and one of their princes, born of Hebrew parents, runs away. His name is Moses, and he finds security out in the middle of the wilderness, and there he sets up home, and one day he's out looking after his sheep. And he sees a burning bush. He approaches it. You know the story well. And when he approaches this, this voice addresses him. Don't approach any further. You are walking on holy ground. Take off your shoes. And in this voice declares to him, I have heard my people's cry. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And now I want you to go down and to liberate my people. That's what you read in Exodus Three. And Moses, when he receives this commission, his response is, Sure, Lord, off I'll go. No. What does he say? I can't go. He has the typical response of the the prophet Not me, Lord. I'm not worthy to do that. And if I go and they ask me, Whose is your God? how shall I respond? Because you remember, at this stage, the Israelites were pretty much more pagan than Seventh-day Adventists. Which God told you? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yeah, but Abraham had lots of gods. So which one? And so we come to this next stage of divine revelation. Read with me verse 13 of chapter 3. Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, which eventually comes to be known as the name Yahweh. I am who I am, or I was who I was, or I will be who I will be. I am the one who is at all times. Translating it into English as Yahweh. This is the Lord's personal name. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. When you read in your Bible, whenever you find Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is I am, Yahweh. Yahweh The God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations, including today. I'm preaching to you this morning about the name of the Lord. What what is his name? Yahweh. Yahweh. And so Moses, off he toddles back to Egypt. And how do things go? Pretty poorly. He confronts Pharaoh, let God's people go. And what does Pharaoh do? Does? What does he do? He makes the slaves' life harder. Before I used to provide you with the straw, now you're going to have to find it yourself. And so you come to chapter 6 of Exodus. where. Moses has a tete-a-tete with the Lord, has a little chat and says, Lord, it wasn't meant to turn out this way. What's going wrong? When I read these verses, I almost fell off my seat. You know, it, it was like a window opening up to think, wow, God reveals himself in stages. He can reveal himself in different ways When God is speaking to Moses, this is what we read in chapter 6, verse 2. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Wow. We have got distinct phases of divine revelation as we go through Scripture. How did he reveal himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God Almighty. I did not reveal myself to them by my name, the Lord, Yahweh. But guess what? I am to you, Moses. And this is why when we come to Exodus, we are moving from one experience of God to another, an altogether more dramatic experience. Mm-hmm. Experience of God. We call this Yahwistic religion in Old Testament studies. This is what we come to when we come to Exodus. And so the story continues, and it is a story which all I can say is, and I shouldn't sin on Sabbath, but I am jealous of Moses. You imagine living in his shoes and walking in his steps, going throughout Egypt and bringing one plague apart after another 10 plagues wow with that final plague the passover pharaoh his spiritual back is broken and he lets israel go moses leads them out and then they get into another difficult situation pharaoh pursues them come to the red sea what happens no problem God splits the Red Sea. They walk through. Moses then, 50 days later, Pentecost, goes up Mount Sinai into the very Shekinah presence, the glory of God, and what does he receive? The Ten Commandments. If you went through that, wouldn't you be able to at least confess that you had some experience of God? How does that compare with your experience? A lot of my faith, thankfully, and I thank them for it, a lot of my faith I received because I was taught by my mom and dad. And praise God they do that, did that. It's totally enriched my life. What an experience. But while Moses is at the top of the mountain, we find that something at the bottom of the mountain is going on which really we can cover our heads and hang them in shame. At the top of the mountain, Moses is receiving instructions on how to make an altar. What's Aaron doing at the bottom of the mountain? Making an altar. At the top of the mountain, Moses is receiving instructions for his craftsmen to be able to create The Ark of the Covenant. What is Aaron at the bottom of the mountain creating? A golden calf. At the top of the mountain, Moses is receiving instructions as to the festivals and the feasts. What's Israel doing at the bottom of the mountain? Feasting and partying. At the top of the mountain, Moses is receiving instructions as to the food offerings what's Aaron doing at the bottom of the mountain? Offering food offerings. You know, it seems that whenever you have God's revelation as to how he wants to be worshipped, Satan always seems to get his version in there, pretty close on the heels of God's version. This is what we find in chapter 32. And after this spiritual calamity, God says to Moses, he says, Moses, I can't take this people any longer. I'm going to start again. Moses says, well, Lord, you know, they can't be that bad. And then Moses comes down the mountain and when he sees what's going on, he says, actually, you've got a point. (laughs) Yeah, I sort of, I get the picture now. Yeah, uh, okay, but do you really want to wipe them out? Because you've staked your reputation on How this people fare. They are your people. And if they are obliterated, guess what's going to happen to your name? Your reputation will disappear. Please, please, don't give up on them. And Moses, he comes at this point with this incredible request to the Lord. He says, Lord, if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 33. Chapter 33, we read there in verse 13. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Lord, we want to know your ways so that we can follow them. And if we follow your ways, then we know how to find favor in your sight. How does that work? That works in this way. if my wife comes up to me and says, Cedric, Would you like a hot drink? And I say, oh, yes, thank you. Wow, that's sweet of you, dear. uh, And off she toddles, and she comes back with a thick coffee. Do you know what my response is? (sighs) Lord, help me. What have I done to deserve this? She is transgressing my ways. If she brings me peppermint tea, yeah, which is the Adventist version of normal tea. Yeah. If she brings me a peppermint tea with a, dose, a little dab of milk in it, why? Because the old habits linger long and uh, and hard. Uh, I was brought up a pastor's son, and my dad dro- drank copious amounts of normal tea. Yeah, that's what we grew up drinking—English tea. Uh, <coughs> My granddad would say, you know, we, we, we beat the Germans in World War II with white bread and tea. And it's, uh, you don't want to give it up if it's got your victory to that extent. Yeah. Uh, but if my wife brings me Adventist tea, a nice peppermint, no sugar, and I take that and I think, mm, my dear, you are the fairest of 10,000. What have I done to deserve a wife like you? That's how it works. If she knows my way, she can find favor in my sight. And if I know her way, I can find favor in her sight. And this is what Moses says. Lord, I have, and bear in mind that he's been in the presence of the Lord. He's experienced the deliverance of the Exodus. He's gone through all that story. And then he says, Lord, I need to know who you are. That tells us our journey with the Lord always has extra stages to go. We can never claim to fully know the Lord in all his glory. There is always more revelation. And that's why the Christian life is an exciting life. There's always another chapter to read. Lord, Lord, Show me your ways. This is Moses' prayer. This is when the Lord is twiddling his thumbs and thinking, should I give up on this people? And Moses says, no, 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 Lord. Give us another revelation of who you are. Because then if we know who you are, we can follow your ways and find favor in your sight. And so the Lord says, okay, Moses, there's a cleft in the rock over there. Go and hide in the cleft and I'm going to cover you. And my glory, you can't look at it face to face. It's too great for you. But my glory will pass before you, and you can see me from behind, and then I will declare my name. And this is what happens. We read about it in our scripture reading. And here we come, I would suggest to you, to what I think are the two most important (coughs) verses in the Bible. Now, that's a big claim to make, the two most important verses in the Bible. But as far as I can see, everything else is just commentary. Everything else just illustrates this revelation. The Lord reveals his name. Verse 5: the Lord descended in a cloud, this is chapter 34, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. By proclaiming his name, what is he doing? He's proclaiming his character. Johan is from Ethiopia. Uh, and uh, uh, they have a, a friend, uh, and I'm probably going to mispronounce her name, but it's something like Egoya. Ego, yeah? I think uh, I've probably massacred that name, but I, I'm praying there's no other Ethiopians here this morning. Yeah. But uh, they have this friend whose name is whatever it is. And if you translate it into English, do you know how you translate it? Her name is Yogurt. Yoghurt. Yeah. Now, I never considered naming our boys yogurt, yeah? or even pasteurized yogurt, you know, for the Adventist version. Yeah? Uh, it didn't occur to me. Yoghurt. But if you think about it, the name yogurt, what do you need to make yogurt? This is not a trick question, okay? Not a trick question. What do you need to make yogurt? What do you need to make milk? A cow now I don't have any cows I don't know if you have but at the moment I can't afford a cow yeah it's, be- it's hard enough just putting petrol into the car yeah uh, I can't afford cows at the moment so to call your daughter yogurt is really saying that you have milk which is really saying that you have cows which is really saying that you are the richest man in the village which is really like us naming our daughters Porsche or Lamborghini. A name has significance. You know, by and large, I mean, who would call their son Brexit? Who would call their son Brexit? But we do. But we have lost the sense of meaning of names. But here in Exodus 34, when the Lord is declaring his name, it's not just because he's flicked through a dictionary of names and said, oh, that's a sweet one. What is he doing? He's actually revealing something which is intensely personal. He's saying, this is who I am. If you want to know me personally, up close and personal, you need to know my name. And so here it is, and my name is long. The short version is Yahweh, but if you want the longer version, this is my name. Can we read this together? Yeah. And let's do it from the version up on the screen, just so that we're reading the same, the same words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I would suggest these are the most important words in Scripture. This is the name of the Lord. Let's just pause a little and meditate upon his name. And may I make a few suggestions as to what's going on here? When you look at these characteristics, you may not want to experience all of them from the Lord. Some of them you will, but some of them you won't. Okay? And let me illustrate this. I'm gonna divide the church in two. You, You very nicely. Uh, got your church architecture correctly for the sermon this morning by having divided into sheep and goats. And that's uh, just worked nicely. So we've got the sheep over here on the right, and we've got the goats on the left. Uh, Proverbs says, the fool goes to the left and the wise man to the right. Uh, That's not politically, of course, you know that. But uh, let me just do this and play along with the game. (coughs) Okay, l- l- let me just check which is left and right. <coughs> yes, it's, uh, it's, it's my rule that, that, that goes this morning. This is the right, this is the left. Okay, now let's just run through this name. And uh, if we decide that we would like to experience this characteristic from God, then I would like somebody, if we like it on this side, just to stand, to be that char- characteristic. If it's something we wouldn't want to experience from God personally, Somebody on this side. So you've drawn the, the short straw this morning. Left side. So let's go through. Merciful. The Lord, the Lord God is merciful. Would we like mercy from the Lord? Do we have somebody called Mercy here? Thank you, Brother Mercy. We only need one, and you need to stand standing. Stay standing. Okay? What about a God who is gracious? Grace. Yeah, We have Sister Grace with us this morning and she happens to be seated on my right. Praise God. Yeah. Slow to anger. Would you like a bit of anger from the Lord? I mean, it's slow. Slow. I need somebody who's very, very slow. Would we like a bit of the anger of the Lord this morning? No. Thank you, brother. Oh, did you see how slow he was? Yeah. Now... When he's, this is where you've got to ask the question, how slow is slow? How slow is slow? Because somebody's slow is somebody else's fast. Yeah? When it comes to driving, my dad thinks I drive quickly. But I think I drive slowly. So actually, we have to make up our minds as to whether God's Slow is really slow. That's why you have Old Testament, New Testament. It's a narrative of history which explains how long it takes for God to really get angry. Slow is slow, and you've got to decide whether he really is slow. Yeah? It's a relative judgment that we need to make. Abounding in steadfast love. Wouldn't we like some steadfast love from the Lord this morning? Yes. Do we have somebody who's loving over here? Thank you, Sister Love, at the back. What about faithfulness? Would we like the Lord to be faithful, never to leave us? Would we like that? Yes, we have a faithful brother at the back. Uh, What else have we got? We've got forgiveness. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Those three are all the types of sins. The sins that you do by accident, those which are deliberate, and those which are done in ignorance. Would you like all those three categories of sin forgiven? Yes. Do we have a brother or a sister forgiveness over here on the right-hand side? Thank you, brother, forgiveness. Uh, okay, and then we carry on. So, does God forgive us? Yes. Mm. Yet, by no means clearing the guilty. Oh, hang on. What does that mean? That means that sometimes he doesn't. Oh, that's a bit of a dilemma. Would we like To have our guilt remain and not be forgiven? No. So do we have somebody who's very guilty over here? (laughs) Yep. Thank you. You see, it's confession before everyone is good for us. You know, that's a spiritually healthy community. I'm pleased to see it. Uh, So what do we notice as we look at where people are seated? What do we notice? Where are, uh, or standing, where are people standing? Over on the right. Okay. This is where God is not like an Englishman with a sip up a lip. Yeah? Keep calm and carry on. That is not God. Yeah? God is an imbalanced character. he has got more on one side than on the other. Now, let's just see how long these guys have to stand. Yeah? How many generations do these guys need to stand? To the thousandth generation. Yeah, Let's pray they had a good breakfast this morning. Yeah? <laughs> They're going to stand to the thousandth generation. Yeah? Now, if it's 99, are we really going to get upset with the Lord? Or if it's a thousand and one? No. You know, this is picture language that... God is using. To the thousandth generation. But when he gets angry and when he doesn't forgive, how long does that last? To the third and fourth generation. What's the average of three or four? Three and a half. Why I love the Lord, and you need to stay standing, you folk. Why I love the Lord is because of the mathematical ratio that... You know, if we can do a scale, this is up high and this is very low. So, his mercy, his grace, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness goes to how long? To the thousandth generation. What about his anger when it comes? 3.5. So, I love the Lord because of the mathematical ratio of 3.5 to 1,000 okay? That's why I love the Lord. 3.5 to 1,000. So, this side lasts beyond how I can count, but when he is angry, yeah, it hits 3.5 generations. In my family, there are 3.5 generations still alive. There is my granny, who is 96-year-old, yeah? She's still alive, yeah? Uh, She's Irish. My English granny, she died. She was 95. She died uh, last year. Yeah? So there were, there's my granny, one generation. There's my mum and dad, second generation. There's me, the third generation. And then there's my sons. How long do you need to punish 3.5 generations? You can do it in a day. That's why... The Lord's wrath in Scripture is talked about as the day of the Lord. You can do it sharp and and short. How long did it take to drown everybody in the flood? Unless they were better swimmers than I am, a couple of hours. His anger is short and sharp. When you read Luke 4, it talks about the year of the Lord's favour... Quoting from Isaiah 61, and what follows the year of the Lord's favor? The day of his wrath. It's all about proportions. Why I love the Lord is 1,000 to 3.5. And if somebody comes along to me and says, Oh, your God is the same as my God, do you know what I have to ask them? What's your proportions? Yeah? You can sit down now. Thank you. Uh, You know, let's do the maths. If somebody comes along and says that when you die, you will burn in hell forever, what have I done to the ratio? Isn't that what I've done? Do you know, I can understand why so many people become atheists if they've been preached a god who was going to burn them in hell, not just for a day or a month or a year, but forever and ever and ever. Why? Because during their 70 years on this earth, they didn't attend church. That's a complete distortion of the name of the Lord. Yeah? It's distorting the ratios. What about somebody who believes that Regardless of how you live, God loves everybody so much that He's never going to destroy this world. What have we done? We've taken this little bit and we've eliminated it, haven't we? And we've just—I'm getting tired here doing this. But uh, <coughs> yeah, what about those who say uh, relationships don't matter? Faithfulness in relationships don't matter. You can pretty much move from one relationship to the other like you're changing your socks in the morning. Okay? What have you done? You've taken the Lord's faithfulness and eliminated it. Essentially, all heresy is a distortion of this ratio and an attack at one of the characteristics of the Lord. All heresy is a distortion of his name. That's what it does. You just think through all the heresies, and essentially it's an attack on one of the characteristics of God's name. Some might come along and say, well, my God is the same as yours. Did you know that when you read the Quran, Allah claims to be all merciful, all faithful. Those are some of his names. And my question is not, well, uh, okay, That's fine. Uh, Okay, Uh, my response is not, great, same God. Because my next question is, what's your maths? Uh, Does your God, Allah, does he have the same ratio of love, grace, mercy to his anger? That's the next question. If he does, then I recognize him. If he doesn't, then that's somebody else. Different ratios this is the Lord's revelation to Moses. And if you read on in the Old Testament, I would suggest to you that this is the core of Old Testament theology. Wherever you go, you find that the name of the Lord, those terms pop up again and again throughout the Old Testament. You read it in Ezra, you read it in Nehemiah. if you go to... Let me just go through to one example. You go to Job. Sorry, not Job, Jonah. Now, if you've got your Bibles, go to Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. Why did Jonah run the other way when the Lord asked him to go to Nineveh? Do you know why it is? Yeah? You read in chapter 4, this is what Jonah says. Verse 2 He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. I knew you were just going to cave in and forgive these guys if they repented. That's why I ran the other way. You read the Psalms. Yeah, the Psalms. The, the theology of the Psalms is something like this. The theology of the Psalms is either, Lord, here I stand under your grace, love, faithfulness, and thank you, Lord. I just worship you. Read Psalm 103. It quotes Exodus 34 verses six and seven all the way through. Yeah, I went through the Psalms with my orange highlighter. And I simply highlighted any term that pops up from the name of the Lord. I found one psalm that doesn't relate to the name of the Lord. All the others are a meditation upon the name of the Lord. They're either, thank you, Lord, for mercy, grace, or, Lord, I need mercy, grace. They're either in the middle where you're not sure, is the Lord being angry with me, or are you being merciful, or they're over here And saying, Lord, you're being angry to me, and I wish you wouldn't. Or, Lord, you need to be angry to my neighbors. They're always relating to the different characteristics of the Lord. This is Old Testament spirituality. How do you negotiate the different sides of God's character? And the hardest thing for us is the consistency of God. Because he is merciful to us, great, I'm forgiven. But he's also merciful to your neighbor, even when he's persecuting you. That's the hardest thing we have to deal with the Lord, his consistency. This is Old Testament spirituality. And we know how the story progresses. Israel move into the promised land. They establish themselves. They end up with kings after the judges. And then the story takes a steady decline as one by one we get good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, king. until in the end the Lord says, you don't value my ways. I can see that. You're not faithful to me like I'm faithful to you. I can't stick around in this relationship any longer. And so the Lord leaves Israel. His glory departs and they go into exile. That's the story of the Old Testament. And when we come to the end of the Old Testament, it is essentially a book without an end. That's why we need the New Testament. And what I would like to do as I finish this morning, as I wrap up, is simply to turn to the gospel. I started with Mark, so let me finish with Mark. When we turn to Mark, we find that the story of the Old Testament has another chapter. Because at the start of Mark, chapter 1, we find the prophet Isaiah is quoted Verse 2, as it is written, the prophet Isaiah, see I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The gospel is the story of how the God who left Israel returns to Israel. That's what the gospels are about. How God who left comes back. To see if they will at this point become a faithful people to him. Unfortunately, they kill him. But as you read the gospel, what you find is, is that the Lord who returns has a name. What is his name? Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Jesus is the Greek for Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh saves. This is the Lord returning. The God of Moses returning. He comes back and he has the same character that we read of in Exodus 34. I mean, let me just whiz through this and then I will close. Mark 10. There we have blind blind Bartimaeus. He requests mercy. Mark 10. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even louder, son of David, have mercy upon me. So we have Jesus dispensing mercy. We have Jesus being gracious back in chapter eight. He has a crowd of hungry people and when he sees them, what's his response? He has compassion towards them. Literally, in the Greek, it says that his innards moved around. Yeah? Splagizomai. I think that's one of my favorite Greek words. And it comes from the Greek word for your innards. And, uh, you know, like when you go over a hill fast and get that bump and your stomach shoots up. Yeah, it's that feeling. He has this sense of, oh, man. And I've got to do something about this. He was gracious to the crowd, and he fed them. Back in chapter 3, verse 5, maybe you can flick back to chapter 3, verse 5, he's in the synagogue Sabbath morning, and the leaders set a trap. They place a man with a withered hand to see what Jesus will do on the Sabbath, whether he will keep their laws or not. He heals the man. But look at verse 5, his response. Jesus' response is, He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. So we have a merciful Jesus. We have a gracious Jesus. We have a Jesus who sometimes gets angry. He is not Santa Claus, who gives you whatever you wish. He sometimes gets angry. But the beauty of it is that this is... Mark chapter 3, and he doesn't zap them then and there, but he gives them his ministry three years, three years longer. It takes years before his anger fully matures. He's slow to anger with them. What about his love? If we go back to chapter 10, you've got the story of a man who comes up to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young man. And Jesus enters into dialogue with him. But the point I want to emphasize is verse 21. Mark, Matthew doesn't record this. Luke doesn't record this. This is uniquely Mark. And he says, Jesus, looking at him, what does he do? Loved him. Wow. I I mean, Jesus, just through a look, could communicate his love. Isn't it a shame that we didn't have 13 disciples? We only had 12, but Jesus was willing for there to be 13 disciples and to mess up the numerologists who believe there should only be 12. He looked at him and he loved him with his look. He is faithful. You know, when I read Mark, I find... That the faithfulness of God is implied. Jesus is not explicitly identified as being faithful, but people have faith in him. But this is the faithful God who has kept his promises. He promised through Isaiah he would return, and now he returns. He is faithful, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Chapter 2, verse 5, the story of the paralytic who was let down through the roof... When he comes down, what does Jesus say to him? Sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. Yet by no means clearing the guilty. You read the mini apocalypse, Mark 13. And there Jesus says, there will come a point in earth's history where my anger will eventually come. It's called the second coming. I will come on my chariot, the clouds of glory, with a sickle in my hand. And at that point, I will liberate my people and I will judge the wicked. I would suggest to you that when you read in the Gospels, you should have a sense of deja vu when you read about Jesus. I've met this character before. Where have you met him before? It is the Lord himself, Yahweh returned to his people and so in the new testament we have this conviction right the way through the new testament matthew 21 uh, matthew 1 verse 21 starts with this she will bear a son and you are to name him jesus for he will save his people from their sins the name jesus is yahweh yahweh saves at the end of the gospel we are told that we are to baptize people in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit how many names One, they all share the same name, Yahweh as Father, Yahweh as Son, Yahweh as Holy Spirit. And so when you come to the New Testament, you get this new revelation of God in all his fullness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's the same Yahweh, the same name that we're already familiar with, the same character that goes right back to the foothills of Sinai. That is the story of divine revelation. Moses, what was his response when God revealed his name? He got down on his knees and he worshipped. What should our response be when we read the stories of Jesus? It should be worship. And put that in a Jewish context. The Ten Commandments tells us that we shall worship no one but... God, And so if we worship Jesus, what are we essentially saying about Him? We're saying that He is God Almighty. He is Yahweh altogether. And now we have beheld His glory. In closing, we are here, 21st century, looking for the Lord's return. My problem is this. When do I want the Lord to return? When do you want the Lord to return? Soon. Very soon. I want Him to return tomorrow. Yeah? It will save me teaching a Greek class tomorrow evening. <laughs> yeah? Wouldn't that be nice? Okay? Or Monday evening. Yeah? That would be nice. Get me out of that bit of bother. Yeah? But you know, the problem is this: is the name of the Lord. What was the name Lord's character? This. Do you know, the longer it takes for the Lord to return, the more he demonstrates his mercy, his grace to this tired, worn-out world. The longer it takes, the more I am amazed at his mercy and his patience with a sinful humanity. The longer it takes, the more my jaw drops. And I just say, indeed... This is his character. The longer it takes, the more I worship him. And paradoxically, the more I want to see him tomorrow. The more I yearn to be in his presence. And so I'm caught where I see the evidence. He has not returned for 21 centuries. Why? because he's slow to anger. And if he takes another 21 centuries, I'll just say, wow, he drives even slower than I do. (laughs) But that's the type of God I want to worship for eternity. And my invitation to you is to ask the Lord to reveal his ways to you. He will do. I've revealed them in Scripture. Let him reveal that name in the day-to-day occurrences in your life. May he be an active presence and may we bow down and worship him. What a wonderful God we serve. And my prayer is is that we will imitate him. That when I go home and I see my wife, I will be merciful and gracious to her. And to my kids, I'll be patient and I'll be faithful that I will honor the God I love by being like him to those around that's my conviction to mo- this morning, and that's my invitation to you. Amen.